Hello, and welcome to Asia in Washington, a podcast of the Edwin O. Reichert Center for East Asian Studies at Johns Hopkins University SICE. Our website is reichertcenter.org. I'm Jonathan Canfield, and my co-host is Hannah Anderson. Thank you, Jonathan. Our guest today is Dr. Kiyoshi Kurokawa. Dr. Kiyoshi Kurokawa is Professor Emeritus of the National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies and University of Tokyo and Chairman of the Health and Global Policy Institute. He was appointed Chair of the COVID-19 AI Advisory Board by Minister Yasutoshi Nishimura in July 2020. A graduate of the University of Tokyo School of Medicine, he was Professor of Medicine at UCLA and University of Tokyo, Dean of Tokai University Medical School, President of the Science Council of Japan, and Science Advisor to the Prime Minister of Japan. Previously, he served as an executive member of many national and international professional societies, including Commissioner of the World Health Organization, Chair and Representative Director of the Global Health Innovative Technology Fund, and Chair of the Fukushima Nuclear Accident Independent Investigation Commission by the National Diet of Japan, among others. We're so excited to have you here with us today, Dr. Kurokawa. Thank you. I'm very honored to be invited for this interview. Thank you. Thank you again. So I wanted to start off by asking if you could talk a little bit about the unique challenges and opportunities for overcoming COVID-19. I know that for Japan, which is a geographic neighbor of China's, the virus was a real and present danger to the country pretty much from the beginning. But as we've seen, COVID-19 is no longer a regional problem. It's a global pandemic. So what are your thoughts on these challenges and even opportunities for coordination between different countries and multilateral organizations? I'm suggesting that COVID-19 perhaps started in Wuhan, China, but spread out to become a global pandemic. And in this hyper-connected world, we could see how each country's leadership respond to this COVID-19 so that we could learn and share the sort of better response to this pandemic. Because I think a hundred years ago, uh, the Spanish uh, flu, I think there's no connection or internet, but with the internet, we could share and also see and follow what, for example, Sweden has done and also in response to US and UK. And then I think we could learn and share the better practice and responses. This is a great opportunity. Uh, because of this pandemic and also connected world. I think that's really interesting because COVID-19 is really an example of a disaster that requires government policy coordination in order to respond quickly and effectively to the crisis at hand. Absolutely right. So I think I really pushing Japanese government and also civil servants and just why don't you just see how, for example, response in the U.S., and also, let's say, Sweden and Italy and also China and Japan. And that kind of thing is a very good learning and sharing. I think one of the lessons that was taken away from uh, the 311 disaster is that trust in government is important, but also right. the competence of the government is another factor for trust building in and of itself. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on Japan's vaccine rollout, keeping these themes in mind, because it looks like the Japanese government under Prime Minister Suga has been able to secure Pfizer vaccine over 144 million doses, and they're starting distribution this week. Yeah. And so there's been some issues about having the special syringes needed. 
to get an diagnosis. So it, it all leads back to this concern about the competence of the government. I wanted to just ask your assessment about the government's current vaccine rollout. Let's go back to the sort of big pharma over the last maybe few decades. There are many companies, but because of transparency and also human rights issues and all the things, all of a sudden, the capital investment in any pharma from basic science into clinical phase is a very critical. Because once you, all, all the research in the rats and all, all the things, and go to make a decision as a board to go to clinical stage, it's a lot of investment, right? And transparency, so that like pharmacology and all the things in the humans. And uh, therefore that is the reason so much capital is necessary to really deliver such a thing in this transparent world. So there's many mergers happened during last three decades or so, maybe four decades or so. So now if you see the major pharma in the base in US, what's left like Merck and only a few others, about maybe five or six or seven, maybe 1980s. But all of a sudden they start merging. And then the UK has a two major pharma, which is GSK and uh, another one. And, and, and also like Swiss has two and the EU, as AstraZeneca, right. and also new stars appeared in Silicon Valley, Gilead and Biogen, this thing. So I think Japan is this, in this size of uh, technology and pharma, maybe we should merge into maybe two or three, that may be enough. But we have a major of um, five, so I'm pushing them, why don't you merge one way or another? But I think since the end of Cold War, which is 1989, Berlin 4, and then all the Windows 95, all the digital technology, this is the same. This is a major change in paradigm in business and academics and governance and everything. But because of economic success in Japan of, and through 1990s, that means the end of Cold War, I mean, they become very arrogant, become very confident in their power in the economic growth, but argue them because that was under the Cold War. On the point of having the manufacturing capabilities to be able right. to develop the necessary items within the healthcare supply chains, I think it yes. does come back to some of the economic success and the big right. companies that were able to develop and take advantage right. of those times. Something you had mentioned is this the, the Cold War, and I'm wondering... Yeah your thoughts on kind of the new Cold War within vaccine distribution. We see a lot of Western produced vaccines uh, and some Chinese produced vaccines. Right. We haven't really seen an indigenous vaccine developed by Japan, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this idea of vaccine nationalism, uh, countries trying to secure enough for themselves. I was not sufficiently vocal about it, because Japan has a sort of maybe three or four major pharma companies. Capital investment could be the range, maybe a bit less. But I think Japanese government should have invested to produce their own vaccine with the consortium of this maybe four big pharma. That, if I'm in that position, I would have done that too. Not only one company, but a sort of consortium of maybe three or four 
a big pharma in Japan. And going back to what you said about R&D, that's really interesting because like Jonathan mentioned, Japan has yet to develop its own indigenous vaccine, but development right. is underway. So I'm wondering what are some of the opportunities and challenges for vaccine R&D in Japan specifically, and maybe the role of the government in supporting and even speeding up this process. The contract with Gilead and also some, some other vaccine company outside of Japan. So I think already quite behind. So at that time, Japan really haven't committed to create their own vaccine, in part subsidized, subsidized by the government. And that was one of the major points of the decision by the government. I see. And curious about the role of private and public cooperation, because I know the Japanese company Shionogi, for example, is in the process right. of developing a vaccine. So is the government playing any role in supporting these private companies as they try and develop vaccines in any way? I, I guess, but I think they rather made a contract with Sotobiogen and also this uh, American company to secure certain numbers. Uh, so that was more like a political decision and also Japanese farmer as a sort of a collective sort of force to make a commitment and persuade the government to do it. But I, I didn't see that. I didn't feel that uh, a kind of activity. So it mm. seems like in the early stages of COVID-19, you think the government could have played a greater role in or helping kickstart efforts to develop a vaccine? Yeah, at that time, I think they just the government decided to negotiate with two vaccine producing company uh, to secure certain doses for Japan. So it seems like Japan has taken more of a procurement approach yes. to getting yes. COVID-19 vaccines, like mm -hmm. you said, and it's reached several deals with Western companies like Pfizer to import yeah. vaccines. And I know that Japanese companies such as Takeda are playing an important role mm -hmm. in helping distribute vaccines and even potentially manufacturing foreign vaccines. So could you share some of your thoughts on the current manufacturing capacity of Japan, especially given the possibility of procurement delays from foreign right. vaccine makers, as we've seen in the case of EU, which has posed some some challenges? Right, right. But at least through the news, news uh, said press, at the Japanese government announced we have made a contract from this Pfizer and this and that to make at least doses uh, could be sort of we are paying for these doses and they secure the doses for certain number priority come from uh, healthcare deliverers uh, which is a higher risk for this hallway so i think that is their priority they just starting this vaccination right now and that means medical doctors and nurses and caregivers on this most uh, high highest risk group right now just starting not their own vaccine but i say bought vaccine from pfizer and I think mm. recently, Prime Minister Suga tapped yeah. Minister Konal Taro to lead interagency effort for coordination, which seems to, it's an unusual position. Uh, do you think it's been effective and helpful in the messaging, some of the transparency? What was your assessment? Well, at least I think Mr. Konal is very more open and also very sort of outsider of this establishment political sort of group. But at least he, that seems to be a good choice because he is very smart, studied undergraduate in the U.S. And I think he's very fluent in communication in, in English and Japanese. Right. So that 
whether that is a good chance for him or not, I'm not so sure. But at least it's a right choice in a way. Because if, if he does do a good job, there's a lot of talk about his potential like rising career in some prospect. It's, it's high risk, a high risk position, but also a high reward if he gets the job done. Shifting gears a little bit, I, I kind of wanted to ask now about uh, this concern that people have if the virus mutates into a stronger yeah. pathogen. There's this underlying concern, especially within Japan, I'm assuming, that this would have to, would either delay or potentially cancel the Olympics. Uh, so I wanted to get your thoughts on this, because I know you've written for the Japan Times um, some pretty yeah. interesting columns. So I argue, just this is teasing, uh, this is not the sort of more serious discussion, but at least when something happened, like radioactivity and also virus, which you cannot see, and sort of a bureaucrat seems to be paralyzed, what to do? But when some building fell, earthquake, and some more visible, tangible disaster, they respond very well. But the Fukushima radioactivity, and this time virus, which we cannot see. So I'm telling them this is a kind of weakness of Japanese sort of smart people, unexpected thing. When this is expected, they create a law and they respond in a very smart way. But unexpected happens, they become paralyzed. It seems like uh, there's a lot of emphasis there on being nimble and flexible and being able to adapt um, to the circumstances. Yeah. In my view, I think this is a kind of weaknesses of uh, so Japanese government or just as this sort of civil servant, which they are very smart, but at least uh, you have to recognize your collective weakness. I'm kind of leaning into that, I'm sure a lot of our viewers are curious about whether Japan is actually going to be able to host the upcoming Olympics based on if they're able to get the vaccine distribution correct. So if you yeah. had to share some thoughts, what would you say? Nobody wants to say it. I mean, that's another right. issue. Trying <laughs> so to draw it out as long as possible. But I think that is a weakness of Japanese bureaucracy and also institution too, in general. But I, you know, I see many speaking engagements. First, I pose a question to the Japanese audience, you know, like very smart people and somebody who's, who just worked for, for, let's say, Mitsubishi Bank for 15 years, can he move to Sumitomo Bank? It's not. So they are not a banker. They are Mitsubishi Bank man. Uh, how about, let's say, some engineer, University of Tokyo graduate, master's and PhD, started working for Hitachi, Hitachi for, let's say, 10 years? Can he move to Panasonic? Usually not. Why is that? That's my question. Because I was completely outlier spending 14 years in the US, building my own career as a medical doctor in academics. And so then as an individual, this is nothing to do with Japanese institution, right? And so that then I begin to see Japan strengths, but also recognize weaknesses, which is a very important element. So I think it's very hard to recognize your own national sort of collective weaknesses when you are very successful economically. A question I had based on that in some way <laughs> is that Japan has been a very prominent leader mm -hmm. in ODA and yeah. uh, development assistance, uh, right. allocating a lot of money to other countries. Um, right. 
And so we see Japan's involvement in COVAX and the Asian Development Bank um, to help mm-hmm. developing countries uh, yes. accessible healthcare products, uh, vaccine distribution. But right. we also see challenges at home domestically within Japan, mm-hmm. securing enough vaccine doses for its own population. So it seems like right. there's very competing priorities. How do you sort of reconcile these or where, where should the priorities be in a way? No, that, that is the reason I think it's very important. To, I think it's easier to recognize your strengths as a nation or in general, right? But to recognize your weakness is a very hard thing to do after this three, four decades of economic success and the Cold War. That's my argument. I was very fortunate to have many mentors and supporters and even uh, become a professor at UCLA and also head of nephrology at one of the major affiliated hospitals, which is a big VA hospital, medical center. I was the head of uh, kidney disease section. So that means I see the weakness of Japan. When it's growing, it's okay, but it stopped growing and they have become paralyzed in my view. I think it's really fascinating how you are able to basically take a step back and critically examine Japan's global status in health and technology um, by drawing from your experience in the United States, for example. And because your experience spans so many years as both a medical doctor and a global health policy specialist, both domestically and internationally, seems like you can draw a lot of insight, especially into COVID-19. So. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role that you are playing in advising the Japanese government right now in the COVID-19 mm-hmm. pandemic and what sort of things you're working on. Right, because I think I'm pushing because, for example, increased PCR, which is very low in Japan somehow, because I think, in my view, I think the Japanese government, the Ministry of Health, really utilize the system, their own system of uh, making PCR because I think this does not necessarily have extra budget. So I, in my view, that was a mistake because increase PCR, even with a company, company or university, that have increased the number of PCR testing is a critical to make any policy. But that's, I think, was very restricted at that time initially. So that I think that was, uh, you know, just I'm not accusing them, but I think at least we have to be fixed. That was a sort of, misjudgment at that time. Even I called Minister of Health, why are you doing this thing? Outsourcing it. <laughs> anyway, pricing comes later. That's my editorial in Asahi at that time. Because unless we have a lot of data in PCR, you just cannot make any policy at that time. I wanted to look at this somewhat from a US-Japan angle uh, and mm-hmm. ask what kind of dialogue do you think the US and Japan need for future pandemic preparedness, both as liberal industrial economies and close ally partners in the region. Uh, Mm -hmm. And over the last decade, especially, we've seen a lot of the more recent respiratory diseases coming from Asia. So a U.S.-Japan focal point, I think, is very critical. So what kind of dialogue or steps do you think should be taken? Well, I think we should encourage more dialogue anyway. And this is broad in China, UK, Europe, EU, and the U.S., I think at least last few decades is really Japan-U.S. partnership was one of the paradigm and core of Japanese growth at that time. So why not? And many went to study in the U.S. colleges and universities. 
but we have to encourage more young generation to go abroad while they are college students. That's my argument. And perhaps, as you know, recent, let's say, nature and sort of university ranking, all the things, Japan is falling quite, become not really number nine in the world, and which is lower than Germany and even France. And why is it? The science output, right? And that's in the sometimes issue around March of nature. And Japan was number nine. Why is that? Japan's population is much larger than, say, let's say, UK and Germany and France. But science output is uh, number nine in the world. Right. And I think the US-Japan angle, both regionally but also globally, could be very important kind of discuss. Right. And for example, the number, and this is a fact, factual data, is many US still remain as one of the really top center of the science and technology, that's research right. and graduate study. And if you see the number of Japanese who went last decade or so to the US university for graduate study, about uh, let's say at around 2000, maybe 15 years ago, about 200, 250 or so. It's gradually coming down to now 170. Only 170 graduate students went to US for PhD because this is a visa, is a student visa, not the immigrant. Why so small? Meanwhile, for example, Taiwan, about 700 goes to graduate study in the US. Even Korea, mm. much higher than Japan. Strange, China. Mm -hmm. 5,000 each year during this time. So why they are not, we are not encouraging them to go abroad, let's say US or UK somewhere for graduate study. I'm encouraging them to do so. The data that you shared, it's pretty striking. And I think to foster better scientific and health cooperation and exchange between the US yeah. and Japan, we need to have more yeah. of those uh, more student exchanges and involvement right. at that level. Then you become you, your unique uh, collaborator and partners and co future collaborator. I think fostering people-to-people -people relationships at the local level yeah, can really absolutely. turn into right. scientific advancement in the future. Well, I think we are coming up on our time limit, but we did okay. uh, want to the floor in case you had any other comments or thoughts. Uh, that you maybe would like to share for our listeners? Yeah. No, what I do just because it's a time of transparency and corona, corona is a great opportunity because it's become pandemic. And you can see and follow and sort of, sort of compare what kind of response Sweden did and Norway did and UK, US, all the things. And still yet, Japan's mortality rate of corona is very, very low. I think you bring up a, a good point. Japan, in many ways, has had some effective policies in containing uh, the virus. Yeah. So there's there's been some positive aspects as well to mm. Japan's response uh, and yeah. in the larger global response that <laughs> the U.S. can take some lessons from. Uh, and I know at the Reuters Center, we've been focusing on that as well. And we want to thank you so much again, Dr. Kurokawa, yeah. for taking your time to be here with us today. Uh, we're excited to continue to follow your health and global policy advising work uh, moving forward. Thank you very much. Yes, thank yes. you.
Yeah, thank you again, Dr. Kurokawa, for all of your insight into COVID-19 policy, both domestically and internationally. Asia in Washington is a production of the Edwin O. Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies at Johns Hopkins University SAIS. You can visit our website at reischauer.org.